right, we're ready. What is the first song? Oh, the favorite one. Yep. All right, let's stand up. We'll sing together. Joy to the world. Christmas music. You guys have Christmas music where you work? They turn it on? 
So this, the satellite channel that has it is like used to be Forty's Junction. Right now it's the well. Last year they played like seven or eight songs over and over and over and over, and it was like 80 different versions of Santa Baby. If you want to hear them all, I'm telling you, like I don't know six different artists. And well, this year I haven't heard that song yet. And as a matter of fact, I heard a gospel hymn on there, and it was it mentioned Christ's birth, and it was just I can't remember which one it was. You would know it. And I was uh, I was thankful for that that they're playing that. And they're playing some of the classic Christmas hymns on that. And so I was pleased to hear that. And actually, you know, I had a conversation with Tyler today, and, you know, about, you know, Christ's birth. And we're thankful for that. And he's a Christian, too. And, you know, just opportunity to use that to share the gospel. I'm glad I'm hearing that this year. I didn't hear that last year. I'm just thankful for that. All right, ready? And the last one, Silent Night.
couple things for you in, in uh, prayer request fashion. So uh, Caleb Allen, one of our interns from this last summer, uh, has a brain tumor. Well, it's not a tumor, I guess I, I'm going to correct that because I believe now they're calling it a cyst. Uh, but over the weekend, uh, he was just in extreme pain, head pain, went to the emergency room, and uh, but before he got there, lost his ability to form words, and so it was a concern. They thought it was a severe migraine, sent him home, but uh, then they called him back for an MRI and discovered this and. Andrus cyst, am I saying that right? Say it again. Arachnoid cyst, that's what it was, an arachnoid cyst, thank you. And uh, so anyway, that's what it is. They don't think that it's cancer, but uh, it, they'll, they'll decide what to do. So anyway, uh, then, this has nothing to do with prayer requests. Uh, this was on the counter back there with my name on it, Pastor John. No no name, so if it's you, thank you. No name, but it says, uh, Pastor John saw this and thought of you. It says, Pastor warning, anything you say or do could be used in a sermon. So um, I'll, uh, I'll wear that for somebody's benefit. I like the hat, thought it was funny. We have uh, an item in the kitchen uh, that I built years and years ago, and uh, we're moving it over to the new house. It's, it's there now. But anyways, I was taking the parts so we could paint it. I discovered I have this habit of when I get a phone call, I just grab a pen and whatever happens to be handy, I'm writing on it. So on the inside of this thing, I had written a note. And uh, so Ken Goins comes to, to our church on Wednesday mornings. Many of you may not know him because it's mostly Wednesday mornings. He's here. He's here on Sunday, night, on Wednesday, Sunday mornings, too. Uh, but Wednesday mornings when most people see him. But anyway, it says here, this is before he was coming, because he's only been coming for about the last five years or so. It says, Ken Goins, fell, a tractor fell on him, Wishard Hospital. That's what my note says. And so I asked him this morning, you know, when was that? And he said that it was March 3rd, 2003. So it's 20 years ago, almost 21 years ago, that I'd written that note and apparently while I was building that cabinet. So anyway, uh, he's fine. Obviously, he was here. Uh, but uh, So I just thought I would share that with you. And uh, yes? Did you find the ring? Did not find the ring. So, yeah, my finger feels still that way. But anyway, and uh, just so you all know, because it's important to me anyway, today is my daughter's birthday, Mia's birthday. So uh, I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to Captain Black. So we were just singing, <clears throat> and there are two pieces to singing. What are they? What? Words and notes, all right? And if the words and the notes don't go together, you don't have much of a... Yeah. Uh, and we're going to get to the words part this evening, um, but I, I was thinking... Um, over the week about this, you know, where we're at and what we're getting ready to do and what we're getting ready to change change gears a little bit and, and kind of ramp it up so that it really starts to, to begin to have some, some significant impact for us in terms of understanding what's going on in the world today. But as we as I was thinking about it, and, you know, we, we talk about the importance of words in, in, in many ways, but 
when we think about the phrases in the sentences and the paragraphs that are that are most important, and then we back up in history to a time in history called the Tower of Babel, when God, in his infinite wisdom, created, and we don't know the number, the number of languages and dialects. But when he was doing that, he was, he was doing something with a great deal of wisdom, with an understanding of something that we sometimes don't think about. And when we talk about language and dialects, and we think about it from a God the Father perspective, what is the most important part of language? Communication. But let's get to the specific. Understanding each other. But what if in our vocabulary and our language it was impossible to convey the details of the gospel. The words didn't exist. And then as we, as we extrapolate that into our theology, and then we, we, we look at it and go, okay, so there are all of these languages in which the gospel can be presented and the theology of the scripture can be related and, and, and conveyed to understand how do we live the Christian life? What does it mean to be a child of God, etc.? And when we understand that and we, we realize that apart from God's infinite wisdom in setting up the, the linguistic structure of every single one of these religions in such a way that the gospel can be presented without a lot of difficulty, okay? There are some languages where there's, their words have been lost over the course of the centuries and millennia, but there are, there are languages where there are, there are aspects of it, and um, in talking to some of the translators, this is the thing that, that amazes them, that in some languages, for example, in Chinese, if you look at the characters, there are characters that are associated with things such as the flood, the nativity, etc. And it's in the character. Um, and in, in, in our language, there's, there are words and things that are there that, that are extremely important. And as, as we think about this, we need to realize that God is in the midst of this whole issue of language and linguistics and, and, and how, do we, how do we then converse with one another, etc. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm going through what we're going through. Remember, we, we looked a couple of weeks ago at the issue of what we would call the languages of antiquity. But even in all of these languages, which are no longer spoken, there's no longer, and, and this is, this is the, a key piece to this, there is no longer a people group associated with these languages that you can go and identify on the planet today. There are no longer cities and countries associated with many of them in the world today. So we've lost some things over the course of time, and language has, has changed, and and uh, has matured and developed. I mean, because if, as you take a look at, at, at language, and we think about the language that was necessary for the, the conveying of the Ten Commandments or the conveying of John 3.16, for example, and, and the nativity and all those other things, um, there were words that, that we use today that they'd look at you and go, what on earth is that? 
automobile, computer, knife and fork, and, and the list goes on and on. And we, we see that the importance of language, language maturing and developing over the course of time so that it, it enables us to be able to, to converse uh, and to be able to discuss and to be able to, to write and, 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 and so forth. Now, when we take a look at Israel in particular, and we think about Israel's problem, okay, when we, when we, when we wrestle with the history of Israel and we walk through um, an understanding of, and if, 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 you know, and again, this is, this is something that you grab a hold of as you, as you read, read through Ezekiel and Ezra and Nehemiah, Daniel, uh, etc., and, and try to understand the history of what was going on and then bringing it up to the New Testament. When we talk about the issue of the captivity and the diaspora, for a, a, a language group, a, a, an ethnicity, those two words are, are dangerous words because of what they have the capacity of doing um, and, and what, what is sometimes accomplished. And that's how you lose a, a language group. That's how you lose an ethnicity. And so it's when, when we have this going on, it's where a people group loses their, their use of the nati their native language, okay? And, and native language becomes extremely important as we're, as we're dealing with this, okay? Um, they then become an immigrant minority with a lost history and a text. Now, so as we take a look at this, and especially in terms of the Old Testament, <clears throat> the Old Testament text was written in what language? Huh? The Old Testament. Hebrew, all right? But what Hebrew? And then we're going to get to the, the fact that there are two large sections of it that are actually written in Aramaic. But they're the small sections, all right? And, but what if, what if the language is lost associated with those... those you, you've got a book, you've got a language in it, but what if nobody can read it? What if nobody can articulate it? It's a, it's a book that, is, that turns out to be somewhat meaningless and, and, and so forth. So this is where Israel was at in their history. They, they were assimilating um, and they were being assimilated and then they were being ghettoized. And ghettoized means that you just basically put them in a very small geographic space and they, they can't talk to anybody but themselves but yet they have some connection to the, the, the native community around them, but they become less and less, and, and, and generation after generation, um, they become less capable of either reading or speaking the language. Right? Um, we, have a, we had um, a, a couple that, that we call grandma and grandma rewards when, our, when we were a lot younger and, and when our kids were just you know, t toddlers. And... and Grandma and Grandpa Rewerts were first-generation Americans from Germany, uh, and they could speak German completely fluently, but none of their kids could speak hardly a word of German. So in one generation, they completely lost their language, and they lost their traditions, they lost their culture, and they had, be they had become completely assimilated, and they were Americans, right? Now, that's, that's not wrong, and there's nothing evil about it, but it's what actually happens over the course of time. Well, this is what has happened with Israel. And so by, by the mid-1800s, um, 
the, the, the people who we call the, the Israelites, Jews, um, were still largely dispersed around the world and, 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 and still essentially incapable of coming together and, and having a, a conversation. So in the, in the Old Testament captivity, and, and remember there was a reason for all of these captivities and the diaspora, etc., the Old Testament captivity was because Israel and Judah became enamored with the images and the idols of the pagan nations around them to include the gross practices. Now, for, for sake of um, just being socially polite, um, I'm not going to explain what the gross practices were, right? Um, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's inched at, it's, it's, there's an inkling of it in the Old Testament, but if you start to study the the the, the practices of the of the the old you know nations Babylon Assyria Nineveh etc as well as all of the rest of the the countries um, that were part of what we know as Gaza today um, and, and the list goes on and on many of which are part of the classical um, anti- antiquity languages um, their cultures were characterized by a degree of vulgarity that, that most of us have no ability to comprehend whatsoever. Um, and, and, and this is what, what Israel absorbed and assumed and began practicing. And, and God said, and don't do this. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God said, don't do this to the nation of Israel. But they ignored God's instructions, and God said, okay, fine. Um, I'm just going to send you all into captivity um, take you out of the land and, and send you somewhere else, and maybe you'll maybe you'll wake up. Um, and, and you kind of see that in, in in some of those Old Testament books. The modern diaspora, which is what we see this in, in uh, James and Hebrews and Peter, uh, the scattered, the strangers scattered, or the sojourners of the dispersion. And this is because Israel, when they when they left Babylon. They, they got the, God had gotten their attention somehow or another when they were going, getting ready to go back to the land. Ezra and Nehemiah get ready to build the walls and so forth. And he said, and don't do this again in many respects. You can see this, this language in some of the prophetic language um, in terms of and, and they basically said, okay, so we're not going to do that anymore. And, and the truth of the matter is all of that pagan, pagan religion, pagan, pagan culture, pagan, pagan traditions – was disappearing um, because it was it was becoming socially unacceptable in, in terms of that, and, and it was just it was dying out. Fortunately, I mean we can be very thankful for that. Um, but what happened is is Israel drifted into the sins of religious legalism, rationalism, and materialism. Now, those three words essentially capture um, in three major buckets all of the philosophies and philosophical positions that, that go all the way back to um, the time of Christ and before, and you, there are different manifestations of it that, that come out um, and, and we can study um, in, in the present even, because there's, and we're going to come back to that sort of at the end of this. Um, and, and this is where Israel is today, all right? Um, when you talk about Israel and you talk about the Jews, etc. Whatever real, what religion they have is a form of religious um, legalism, right? And we, we're more familiar with, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees and all of that that was going on 
um, during the time of Christ, etc., in the time of Paul, when he was going to the synagogues, etc. And the rationalism is, is, is essentially the, the belief system that, that place it pushes, pushes the whole idea of creation and a, God, a creator God out of the equation, right? It, it, it really centers it on, and, and then this is mater, materialism, and frankly, a materialistic um, culture is just one that has, it's all about the stuff. I mean, um, and, and the stuff is, just has a different, you know, it's, it's who's got the most glitter, glitz on their chariot versus who's got the most glitz on their Chevy truck or whatever. You know, it's the same thing. It's, it, 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 it amounts to the same thing in, in many different ways. And this is Israel today. Do not be deceived, okay? The Israel that we know, whether you're in Israel or you're in other places around the world, and in the United States in particular, is a very religiously legalistic religion. Even, even with the Orthodox Jews, it's very rationalistic and it's very materialistic. And the thing that, would, that, that, that is most surprising from my perspective is that when we start tearing apart the who's who in, in some of the, the, um, the culture, you, you quickly realize that there's a large percentage of the Jewish population, although it is a small percentage of the population, that, that's driving the, the ship here in some of the, the, the cultural things that we've got going on. So when you, when you take a look at the LGBTQ, et cetera, and you start sorting out how many of these people are Jews and who's leading this and what are they doing, you're going to find out that the Jews have a high level of, of, of acceptance of, and going back prior to, you know, we, we, in the last 10 years we've, we've picked up the LGBTQ thing. We used to say homosexual, gay, lesbian, etc., and it basically captured the whole thing. Well, within Judaism, um, that's one of the things that has been characteristic, but then there's a lot of other things that are, Part of it, and the materialistic aspect of it, which is, is a is a, um, a double-edged sword, because when you take a look at the materialism, and, and this is this is also the the the, the thinking process of of it, the, the small nation of Israel, um, on an annual basis, and this is this goes back for decades, um, as as a country, and it's it's not just in percentage numbers, it's in raw numbers. Um, the 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 Jews have the most number of patents. And, and Nobel and Nobel prizes, all right. Now, and it's in science, and not just the Peace Prize, but the, all the rest of them. They're very brilliant people, and and they're very capable people. Um, and just as, as you know, as an illustration, so we sell a lot of our, our military equipment, military hardware, to to Israel. <clears throat> but when we sell them an F-16, basically they sell we sell it to them as a frame an engine, and a cockpit. They then put in their own avi avionics and their own um, uh, warfare systems in it, and they, they run circles around ours. And, and they don't share that with us, right? Um, so they, they have done amazing things, and they are doing amazing things, but understand that they're not, I mean, there are Messianic Jews, yes, but they're a, a very, 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 very small percentage. Of, of, of who the, Jew, Jew, the Jews and the, the Israelites are today. And, and so the, the Israel is still in a diaspora because of the fact that 
they really haven't come to grips with an understanding and appreciation of who is the creator God of the Bible. All right. So this is, this is what makes the whole issue of, of the discussion of Israel in the Middle East today very fascinating. Okay. So, but the, the main problem that, that Israel had, in addition to being philosophically um, at an antithetical level or antithetical position in relationship to the scriptures, is the fact that Jewish is differentiated from the Hebrew. All right? That which is Jewish and that which is Hebrew are not necessarily synonyms. Classical Hebrew represents the pre-exilic first temple period, and, and that's the language of that area, during and after the exile. Aramaic and, and Arabic had more influence on what came to be known as Jewish or modern Hebrew, right? And so when you, when you bring the, the Aramaic and the Arabic into the Hebrew language, it changes. It changes its, its, its culture. It changes its emphases on, uh, in things. And so, so and just as an example, the following sections of the Old Testament were written in Aramaic, in Daniel uh, 2, 4 through 7:28, and then in, the, in Ezra, those, those passages. And in Daniel, what Daniel was doing in, in those, the, those passages, those chapters, is he was talking the court language of Babylon, right? Now, that's not different, any different than today. Throughout the history of mankind, there has been what, what has always been known as is the court language. Um, it's the majority language of the leadership across um, across country lines, all right? And in, in, in Ezra, we have the diplomatic language of the Near East, okay? And that, that's very important because, um, and that was Aramaic in both cases, all right? So Aramaic was the language, oops, what did I do? Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so in, 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 in the 20th century, there were two languages that basically became the languages of this particular space, the court, the diplomatic language, etc. And, and it, it was somewhat bilingual, but not multilingual. And that becomes extremely important. And that was English and French. Now, when you're writing laws, writing treaties, writing other documents of, of that form, if you if you write them in multiple languages, they become ununderstandable un because the, the languages are not identical. They don't, they don't bring across the same nuance in terms of, of what they're being said, what is being said, rather. And so what was going on within uh, the Jewish community was a breaking down of the, the, uh, the knowledge that's in the, it's in the language itself that enables them to communicate what was going. So the classical Hebrew was almost under ununderstandable by most of the, the 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 Jews who were scattered around the world. Hebrew was no longer a spoken language. Okay, so the Jews were no longer speaking Hebrew, whether it was home or was in, on the street or wherever, but a liturgical language in the same way that Latin was for much of the later Catholic Empire. The majority of those attending mass did not know what the priests were were reading or saying in Latin, uh, which was not their spoken language. Well, it would be, it would be the same way as if, if uh, when, when, when pastor preached his messages, um, when he preached an Old Testament message, he would, preach classical, he would be speaking in classical Hebrew, and if he was teaching a, a New Testament passage, he would be teaching it in, in, in classic Greek. And, and how many of us would understand a word of what he was saying? No, we wouldn't. 
And that was the problem in terms of understanding the religion of Israel because they didn't speak the Hebrew language. They were quickly losing the, the influence of, of the language and the, the core to the language that was, that was necessary to understand the nuances of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, just alone. And so uh, Eleazar ben Yehuda, a Jew born in Lithuania, now in 1858. Now, how many of you know where Lithuania is? Anybody? Okay, two or three. It happens to be a small, very small country um, up on the, the Baltic Sea, up, up next to Finland. And you would say, what's a Jew doing way up there? Didn't he know that it snows up there and gets cold and whatever the case may be? Um, but that's where he So that, that just gives you an idea of the, the spread of the Jews. When God said, I'm spreading you out, he meant what he said. And, and so in, in some of the more confusing places and things in terms of where there are, there are synagogues or the, 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 the residue of synagogues, is even in some of the islands of the Pacific, there were some small, very small, tiny synagogues and some small Jewish communities. How on earth did that happen? You know, I mean, so we, we need to understand that, that they were really spread out around the world. Um, he was a Jewish activist for a homeland, all right? And we're, um, we're going to get to that, the Jewish activism aspect of this and, and the homeland is what's called Zionism, and we'll, we'll come back to that in, a, in another week. For the dispersed Jews, all right? He realized that there was no way a homeland could be achieved without a modern spoken written language. He was considered to be the, modern, the father of modern Hebrew. Now, it was back during this, this period in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that there began to become uh, a, a wide sense of understanding that given the conflicts of the 1800s, 1900s, uh, and then that would include World War I and World War II later on, that there needed to be a place for Israel, because a large portion, at least of the Western world, was Judeo-Christian, but there was no place. There was no place for the Jews, and, and so there was an undercurrent, not just among the Jews, but among some of the others, um, some of the other Western communities, to to find a place. And, and there were two reasons behind this. Number one, they wanted to get them out of their own countries. And two, it wanted to get them settled someplace where they could have their, their own little homeland where they could, you know, do their thing, all right? And, and that's, that's being a little bit sarcastic, but that's the truth, all right? Um, understand that, that the, the repopulating of, of Israel was, was not an easy thing. So as, as he suggested, if it, if it were true that Hebrew was, in fact, no different from the classical language of antiquity, then let us revive the Hebrew language, all right? Um, for in this way, Hebrew would become a useful language to the younger generation instead of being a dead language. Well, the idea of dead languages is not something that has gone away from the court over the course of human history. There are dead languages or dying languages on the planet today. Um, in, in some of your small island, island communities and in other places, um, our Indian tribes, uh, they're having a difficult time getting their kids to understand whether it's Cherokee or Navajo or, or whatever the case may be. And when they lose the language, they lose the culture um, because they lose all the songs and the dances and so forth and so on that go with it. And, then, and they're, 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 they're definitely cor correlated to the languages. Um, 
He said, let us, let us revive the Hebrew language, for this way Hebrew would become useful to the younger generation instead of being a dead language, not useful for anything. And that's the case. That's the case. We can only re- it's like, it's like if, if you spoke Middle English, you'd be talking to the wall, and you'd have no way of discussing anything with anybody. But you, if you talk 20th century English, you can at least get by with a conversation. Um, he said, we can only relieve, uh, revive the, the Hebrew language in a country where the number of Jewish inhabitants is greater than the number of Gentiles. And, and so you have to understand that there's another aspect of this that, that is very near and dear to, to, to this country, and that is why when the Founding Fathers were dealing with the issue of uh, the standing up of rights and responsibilities and so forth and so on, they made it really, really clear in the early documents that there was one language on this planet, on this, on this continent, English. We were an English-speaking nation, period, end of discussion. If you, if you came here, you learned English. We didn't learn your language, you learned our language. If you wanted to become an American, if you wanted to become an American citizen, if you wanted to vote, you, you speak English. And English was the language of our history and our historical documents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in, 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 our, in, our, in our school system, right? Um, Somebody was talking to me this morning, I think it was Vicki, over in Perry Township. Um, that is one of the largest Chin uh, population groups. And they have, I think she said 26 dialects or some number of, you know, it's, it's not like two or three. And, and they're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we have an education system. Well, for us, as it relates to our history, and this is well understood, this is why the, the McGuffey Reader became the default tools for education in this country, right? And no matter what the subject was, it was, it was taught through the, the, the alphabet and the phonics and, and so forth of, of what was in the, the McGuffey Reader. But there was another aspect to the McGuffey Reader that became so very important. And that is, what was the culture that was communicated page after page after page after page in the McGuffey Readers? Judeo-Christianity. Bible verses were memorized, etc. And so the Bible became the, 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 the back book, if you will, that they used as their, as their major reading textbook. All right? um, and so, th- understand, this is not something that just the Jews, we, we were thinking about this ourselves, and our founding fathers would, would, would have probably, you know, if they had the ability to come back to life, be resurrected and come back, and they would have, they would have really had a, a conversation when we started to include you know, bilingual anything. And, and it's, it's had a huge impact on our, our nation because if you don't know English and you don't read the documents of, of, of American history and European history in the English, especially the English documents, you don't know what it means to be an American. And you don't care because the only thing that you care about is that which, is, that which supports the language that you are speaking. All right? um, so they, they, had, they realized that the number of Jewish inhabitants had to be greater than the number of Gentiles. Therefore, let us increase our numbers in our desolate country, which is what it was at that time. It was a desolate country. It wasn't the, 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 uh, the abundant country that Israel is today. And, and you know, you ask the question, why is, that, why is Israel green? And you go across the border, if you will, and it's just nothing but sand. Well, they learned how to farm. And they farmed. And they farmed well. And it was, it was the land of, of, of peace, of a... Uh, you know, of honey. I mean, and basically, 
the orange, the oranges and the grapes and everything that they grow over there, it's, it's amazing. They, they provide more mandarin oranges to the rest of the world than anybody else does. Just, I mean, that's just a single illustration. And so let's place the remnant of our nation in the land of their forefathers, and it's going back to, obviously, the, 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 uh, the, the 12 sons, uh, and, and thus we will revive the nation and its language will too will live. Right? And they realized that if they did not have a language and they could stand up and, and speak their language, and then as a people group they could stand, we, we represent this particular nation and this particular language group and this particular ethnology, um, that they were never going to be able to get a homeland. Um, if this hadn't occurred in the, in the mid to, to late 1800s, there would have never been a Balfour Declaration, 1914 and 26, there would have never been a UN Declaration. Because, well, for whom are we doing this? And, and I'll show you in a second just exactly what this means. So when he got to Palestine in 1881, um, there was no common language for all the Jews living in, in Jerusalem. There was no common language. The, mem the members of different communities spoke the language of, and dialects that they had used in their mother countries, wherever they came from, um, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Africa, Etc. Uh, where they were scattered, or in their fathers' homelands, right? The Sephardim, the Sephardim, or then there's in the mid, mid Mediterranean and the Middle Eastern Jews spoke a Judeo-Spanish. The the Musta Arabin, or the local Jews, spoke Palestinian Arabic. And when I was getting ready to go to Iraq, one of the things that they they helped us to try to understand and Arabic for me was as difficult as Hebrew was, um, and it, it looks the same on paper as Hebrew did to me. I mean, it just it looks like scribbles on paper, um, and I never could really get a handle. My head did not work on that stuff real well at all. Um, but they said Iraqi Arabic and Iranian Arabic and and uh, Turkish Arabic and S Syrian Arabic, and the list goes on and on. They can't talk to each other because their Arabic is of a different dialect. They use the exact same alphabet, but their pronunciation and even some of the, the phonetics and some of the word structure is different. They need a separate um, dictionary in order to figure out who, what, they're, what they're talking about. So this was, this was what was going on. Um, and then the North African dialect, which, which included a lot of um, words that were assimilated from the, the African languages. Um, and then the Caucasians spoke Georgian, now that would mean, the, to a large extent, those that were Eastern and, and, and Northern European. The Crimeans, Tartar, and the Ashkenazim, or the Ethiopian Jews, spoke Yiddish in different dialects. And so the only, the only way that I know how to describe this is linguistic goulash. I mean, it's just pour it in, make it work, and if you and your wife can understand it, you're good. If no, you, you can't speak to your neighbor, well, so be it. I mean, and that's the way it was. And so how do you, how do you govern? How do you worship? How do you educate when, when that's the nature of the language? What kind of culture, what kind of tradition can you possibly have uh, in, in this? So Arabic was the language of the, the street common to the city dwellers who, dwelt in, with, who, who dealt with work and trade. But when the tr learned men from the different communities and all of those languages met together, and at the learned men, I mean, we're talking about a handful of people, um, they would speak among themselves Hebrew according to the Sephardic accent, right? And, and so 
the Hebrew, it was a specific Hebrew with a specific accent. It's sort of like the Boston accent versus the, the Brooklyn accent versus the Georgia accent. I mean, and, and quite literally, some of it was such so, so different that it was almost ununderstandable unless you, you had studied that as a second language. Because the, the type of Hebrew used by these people was, however, quite bookish, artificial, and generally reserved for the discussion centering around the, 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 the Hebrew text. But you can't go to the grocery store with, with, that, with that language. You, you can't get into international discussion with that language. So the, the conclusion was Palestinian Hebrew became the Hebrew that Yehuda, Yehuda adopted to purify. He took a structure and, and he said, this is, this is the framework that I'm going to work with and I'm going to build a language and that's the language we're going to teach, we're going to use, etc. so that we can say we're Jews and this is our language of the 20th century. And we're all going to speak it. And they started in the, in the Hebrew schools around the, around the world. That's what began to be taught so that the, 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 the children of the next generations could actually learn the language and go to Israel and speak the language among their people, right? So, what we're, and what we're dealing with here is, is how does a nationality and a nation regain its language, common history and culture? That's, that's what they had to do, all right? They had to rebuild all of that. And, and then you, you have to ask the question to go back to some of our discussion in previous weeks, why Palestinian Hebrew, right? Because it was the language of Palestine centuries ago, right? Now, it's a modified version of it, but they call it Palestinian Hebrew because it has its linguistic connection back to the Hebrew of the 12 children and the 12 tribes and, and the history that goes back through the Old Testament, etc., and the naming of it in itself was significant. It wasn't German, German Hebrew or something else. It was Palestinian Hebrew. Why? Because what is, what is Palestine essential to? A thing called the Promised Land? See... And again, what they were doing was going through a process of establishing their historical and, and land-based credibility in the world. So now we have, by virtue of the name of the language and where they're, where they're, they're sitting in, in, in terms of, how did he, how did he say it? Um, uh, oh, the, the different communities and, and, and so forth. And... and for the children and so forth, and so they could say, "I'm a Jew. I'm a child of. I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite." And it had meaning, right? And and so what was happening at that point was the, setting the conditions so that there could be conflict in the Middle East, because without the Jews there, it basically was an Arab space. But once the Jews began to 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 migrate. Back to Egypt, some of you are, are familiar with the book Exodus, and, and, and I remember reading that. Um, it's an amazing book um, to, to get a handle on, on just what that was all about. It's worth reading even, even today to understand some of the history behind 
um, the process of the Jews getting back to the land. And so now when we, when we take a look at this and we start to um, wrestle with, we, this, is, this is a slide that I used when I did the, the Islam uh, series, but also I brought this up um, about four weeks ago. What is Islam? A comprehensive system of thought and life, a replacement religion and a distinct, with a distinct legal system uh, within which is a religion. Now understand, it's Arabic-based. And the Arabic legal system has terms and terminology that, that make things legal because it's in their language. It, there are aspects of it within the, the, the language that also provides foundational um, structure for the religion of Islam. And so as we, as we look at this, and I mean, I'll give you the, the, the I'll call it the, the rough edges version of this, okay? Um, some of you may have seen, and I, I hope that you haven't, but if you did, you got a, a strong gut because if you've watched any of the videos, the movies that, have, that were taken during the October 7th war, if you want to call it that, and what actually happened on the ground, what, the, what Hamas did on the ground, and you ask the question, how could they do that? They could do it because it was legal. It was right to do in their legal tradition and in their religious tradition. We, we in the United States have what's called rules of law and, and rules of engagement in terms of how do we do warfare. Um, to a larger extent, we, we use the, the rules, the Geneva Convention and the rules associated with it, that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And, and if, if we were to uh, um, go through what happened on October 7th and, and run it up against the Geneva Convention, there were so many war crimes that took place by Hamas at, at, at an egregious level, right, um, that they should all be hung, right? There should be no ceasefire. There should be no there, no truce whatsoever over there, and 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 that's what should happen. Well, unfortunately, <clears throat> that legal system and that religion has aspects of it that just have no. There's no connection to what is Juda what is Judaism. What is Judeo-Christianity? Now, what we've got some struggle to, do, to deal with is, is some of the Old Testament in terms of the instructions that God gave to the nation when they, when they crossed the Jordan River and, and what was supposed to happen, all right? Um, some of that is somewhat gruesome, all right? But the legal system that, that, that legitimizes what they did is antithetical to British common law, all the... If take it all the way back to Augustine and just war, war theory, that's part of what what builds our legal system, our rule of law, etc. And so now we have these two vastly different systems are in mortal battle to win, to become the comprehensive system of thought, replacement civilization, a distinct legal system, and, and uh, etc., and so it is out of this reality that, that, that came together in the late 1800s now that we have a new language back, back, back on the main track, okay, basically 
in the real world. It is a language that is being spoken and, and being talked about, and they're, they're, they're living the language, etc. So we're, we'll have to answer the question, what is Judaism? All right? um, and, and that's important. What, is, what does it mean to say, I am a Judeo-Christian? All right? and, and so we take this a step further. We say, what is modern paganism? What is modern liberalism? What is modern wokeism? And in, in, in understanding this set of categories will explain much of what we've seen after October 7th because it's all t tied to these systems of thought, every one of which wants to be the system of thought in life. They want to replace the Judeo-Christian system of civilization. They want to replace the constitution and the legal system that we have. They want to replace Christianity, and, and, and then they want to rebuild it on an entirely different structure. And there is mortal conflict going on for the hearts and minds of the American populace all right, at this time. Right? Um, and so this is what we're going to get into, and I'm going to walk you through some of this, because if you, if you don't grasp a hold of this, you won't understand what's going on. And so then we have to deal with the history of terms and whether it's a term is used in a specific way or in a general way. For example, the word Israel it can be used in a specific or a general way. Specifically, it talks about how many of the tribes of Israel? Two or ten. But you just said Israel. You must have meant twelve, right? So you see that? We use it for a portion of the nation, and yet we use it as... In a, in a general sense, of the entire nation. So we have to be careful. Then there's the classic historical or ancient and, and modern use of terms, right? Um, and, this, this, and then we, we talk about the origin and historicity. Uh, when did a term originate? When did it, you know, why, where did it originate? Why, why at that precise moment in history? Um, and we'll, we'll work through some of those, um, et cetera. And then we're going to work through redefinition, revision, revisionism, and redaction because that's how you can control the thinking process and the, structure, the, the structural process of the way people think in terms of what is right is what is wrong, uh, et cetera. And so, um, all right, so I've got four minutes of, we're going we're to quit, but this is what we're going to pick up over the next couple of three weeks, because if we don't understand who's using which term in what context, we won't understand that we're being duped to believe, to believe that they believe what we believe because they've used the exact same terms, but they've used them in a vastly different, with a vastly different definition. And this is exactly what's going on in, in terms of what's, what you see in the news, what you're listening to in the news, all right? They're, they're, they're playing the conservative portion of the U.S. population as if they were winning fools, to be quite honest, all right? Um, and, and we go, okay, so yeah, we, you know, we're, we're kind of just giving them a ride. No, they don't mean what we mean. They, don't, aren't, they aren't using the words. And the same thing can be said for the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Arabic and those different languages. And they have, they have words and nuances in those languages that we cannot, almost cannot translate. And I mean that sincerely. There's, there's some aspects of Arabic that we almost cannot translate. And they have words and uses of words that... That, that we have no 
connection to in the English language or in the European languages, the, the Indo-European languages. So I'm going to stop there um, so we can break for prayer. Uh, any questions? Do I risk that tonight? Talk to me. I'll be out, I'll be out there and around um, for a little while if you've got questions rather than you know, uh, using this time here for the prayer time. So I'll, I'll let you all be. <clears throat>